God's Love Language, a podcast designed for Christian discipleship with emphasis on developing our relationship and fellowship with God. Now, here is our host, Joe Enloe. Yes, sir. You bet your boots. That'd be me. Greetings. Welcome back to God's Love Language with Joe and Lowe. I am Joe, and I am a full-time Christian called to share my knowledge and insight with all believers to help you grow in your faith and help you gain understanding of God's calling on your life. Now, I recently received a request to talk about a subject that is prominent in everyone's life. That is the subject of relationships and the fellowship that goes along with those relationships. My upcoming book, God's Purpose for the Family, has its core premises built on the importance of relationships and fellowship with God, yourself, family, and your community. This podcast is a result of work on that book. After doing the research for these next few podcasts, I realized that this subject is probably more important than you or I previously ever thought. With the advancement in neuroscience and biology, Relationships and the fellowship accompanying them can set the course of your success or failures in life. And as we verify the scientific facts with the Bible, we will see just why God made it this way. But that will come later. Every human has desires or at one time or another to have a, have a relationship with someone or a group of others. Hopefully your life began with a healthy relationship between you and your mother or maybe another primary caregiver. Naturally, once you establish a relationship, then the fellowship happens. And depending on the closeness of the relationship will also depend on how much fellowship you have with that person or persons. Just think about if you belong to any groups or you will know you're not close to everyone as you are maybe to a couple of two or three individuals, just like Jesus was with his disciples. He had 12, but there were three of them that were really close to him. In fact, your success or relationships or lack of it will set the tone and quality of the relationships you have with others for the rest of your life, or until you make changes anyway. On the negative side, your experiences with others may have been so bad that you have nothing to do with others, or as little as possible. When you think about it, that's still part of your nature of interacting with others. That's some learned behavior. We introduced the biology of the belief system on episodes four and five as we introduced Dr. Bruce Lipton's book, The Biology of Belief. They give us a basic understanding of how biology works in our mind and how the conscious and subconscious works. Listening to those two podcasts may help understand some of the things we talk about in this series. On the other podcast, and I've mentioned that you need to increase your relationship and fellowship with God and our, the Trinity. But what does that mean? And what does that look like? I will spend the first podcast talking about what relationship and fellowship are and why we need them based on the sciences of psychology, biology, neuroscience, or neurobiology. Then I will talk about what it means to have relationship and fellowship with God and how that model should set the tone or example for your relationships and fellowship as humans. If you understand why God wants to have a relationship and fellowship with you, then it will help you grow closer to him and allow you to grow closer with others in your life. We will ask questions like, 
Where does this desire for relationship and fellowship come from? Or why is it so important for our general well-being and sense of life satisfaction? Let us begin by defining relationship and fellowship. What we are referring to when we talk about relationship is to have an association or involvement, a state involving mutual dealings between people or parties. It can be a connection by blood or marriage also, and that kind of touches on the biblical definition of relationship, because you know there are different levels of relationship, usually accompanied by corresponding levels of fellowship. You know, the, the closer you are to someone, the more time you spend with them and the more you get to know them. That's what kind of what fellowship means, is to have a friendly relationship. And sometimes you share a lot. The, the closer you get, the more you share. That's, that's having fellowship, doing things with them. It's also companionship, like the fellowship between the father and his son or the father and his daughter or the mother, and an association of persons having similar tastes. That's why you join certain clubs or join certain home groups. That's what we call a fellowship groups, home groups, those things that we get involved. We're a little bit closer to those in our home group or our fellowship group than we are with the rest of the church normally. In the Greek, the word for fellowship means the communion or common faith experiences and expressions shared by the family of believers, as well as the intimate relationship they have with God. Okay, what does neuroscience say about relationships? Now, I debated on whether to start with the psychology of relationships or the neurobiology explanation first and i kept going back and forth what you know which would be better to start with but because of the depth of research and how it affects psychology i believe that once we have a biological understanding for the need to have relationships and fellowship it will make the psychological reasoning a little bit clearer so that's why we start with the neuroscience and, bi- and biology. However, keep this in mind. As Dr. David Meyer said in his textbook, Psychology, everything psychological is simultaneously biological. Your every idea, every mood, every urge is a biological happening. You love, laugh, and cry with your body. Without your body, your genes your brain, your appearance, you are indeed nobody. Have you ever wondered what the difference was between individual therapy and family therapy? Why, why involve the family at all? Westerners are notorious, that's us, about focusing on ourselves as individuals as we go through life. Yet we spend so much of our time and effort establishing and nurturing relationships it could be seen as a paradox, actually. We're alone. We want to be alone, but we want relationships. According to Louis Cazzolino, in his book, The Neuroscience of Human Relationships, Attachment and the Developing Social Brain, second edition, relationships build, shape, and influence our brains. While we are busy cherishing our individuality, our brains and minds are being stimulated influenced and regulated by those around us. Gradually, we discovered that we are social creatures with brains and minds that are part of larger organisms called 
families, communities, and cultures. This awareness made it increasingly clear that to understand a person, we need to look beyond the individual. Hence, family and couples therapy were born. There is much more explanation needed about biology and neuroscience of the brain than can be talked about in this podcast. It would take up several textbooks. I am going to quote and then discuss several readings from Dr. Cozzolino's book to aid in our understanding of how relationships affect our neurobiology. Before we begin, remember from your basic biology or psychological class about the structure of the sensory neurons, those nerve cells, with their dendrites, axons, and synaptic gaps. No two neurons actually touch when communicating. You know, that, that's how the brain communicates. It sends signals across these uh, ner- nerve cells, you know, th- through the dendrites into the cell and out through the, the axons and then to the synaptic gaps, which connect to the next cell. But in actuality... They don't actually touch. There's a little gap there. And there is a microscopic gap between all receiving dendrites of one cell and the descending axons of the communicating cell. Individually, neurons are separated by small gaps called synapses. These synapses are not empty spaces by any means. Rather, they are inhabited by a variety of chemical substances engaging in complex Interactions that result in synaptic transmission. It is this synaptic transmission that stimulates each neuron to survive, to grow, and be sculpted by experience. In fact, the activity within synapses is at least as important as what it takes place within the neurons themselves. We know that neurons activate and influence one another through multiple biochemical messengers. In fact, many of our medications that you may be prescribed work on this level. They either inhibit or encourage neurons to send certain signals because of the medication that it's given you. They have inhibitors and they have those who uh, and promote that neuron to fire and transmit. Dr. Cozzolino proposes, and I agree, that when it comes right down to it, does it most communication between people consist of the same basic building blocks? When we smile, wave, and say hello, these behaviors are sent through the space between us. We'll call that the synaptic gap of, gap of our behavior. These messages are received by our senses and converted into electrical and chemical signals within our nervous system. Whether you're smiling at somebody, giving somebody a dirty look, or ignoring somebody, or do you say what we call the little passive-aggressive type remarks. These internal signals generate chemical changes in us, electrical activation, and new behaviors that in turn transmit messages back across the social synapse. We send something back. The social synapse is a space between us, a space filled with seen and unseen messages and the medium through which we are combined into larger organisms such as families, tribes, societies, and the human species as a whole. Because our experience as individual selves is lived at the border of this synapse and because so much communication occurs below conscious awareness, this linkage is mostly invisible to us. I would add that it is at this level that our experience with past relationships colors our interpretation of the signals we receive and give to others in our synaptic area. 
Neurons have three sequential levels of information exchange. They're called first, second, and third messenger systems. They are, number one, the communication across the synapse. That, two, changes the internal biochemistry of the cell, which in turn, three, activates the mRNA or the messenger ribonucleic acid, the material that translates protein into new brain structure and protein synthesis to change cellular structure. Yes, change. It is through these processes that the brain changes in response to experience. How about that? You can teach an old dog new tricks. You can change the structure. These three levels of information exchange are also taking place between individuals. In other words, when we interact, we are impacting each other's internal biological state and influencing the long-term construction of each other's brains. Yes, you heard that right. This is, in essence, is how love becomes flesh. Or I'll even argue how hate becomes, takes life and people have problems. But love becomes flesh because it changes because these chemicals create this into our brains from the signals that we get. Now, I don't think Dr. Corzellino really understands how biblical that last statement is when he says this is how love becomes flesh, but we'll talk about that later. Like every living system, from single neurons to complex ecosystems, the brain depends on interactions with others for survival. Each brain is dependent on the scaffolding of caretakers and loved ones for its growth and well-being. So, we begin with what we know. The brain is a social organ of adaptation built through interactions with others. To write the story of this journey, we must begin our guidebook with the understanding that there is no single human brains. There's no brains only exist within networks of other brains. You can't find a brain out there for sale. The fact that the brain is such a highly specialized social organ of adaptation is both good news and bad news. The good news, if unexpected challenges emerge, our brains have a greater chance to adapt and survive. When good enough parenting combines with good enough genetic programming, our brains are shaped in ways that benefit us throughout life. And the bad news we are just as capable of adapting to unhealthy environments and pathological caretakers. The resulting adaptations may help us to survive a traumatic childhood, but impede healthy development later in life. The family is the primary environment to which our young brains adapt, and our parents' unconscious minds are our first reality. Because the first few years of life are a period of exuberant brain development, early experience has a disproportionate impact on the development of neural systems. Raise up a child and away she go. In this way, early negative and personal experiences become a primary source of the symptoms for which people seek relief in psychotherapy if their early upbringing is traumatic. There is much more to the psychological and neurobiological of our emotions and brain than can be discussed here. I have posted the next episode on the psychology of relationships in episode 16. In it, 
I give a summary of the neurobiological aspect of the brain and its need for relationships and fellowship. It is available for your listening pleasure now. Next month, the first Tuesday in July, I will post the biblical view on relationships and fellowship and explain why we are the way we are. Until then, or may God bless you and keep you, and may your relationship with God grow closer and increase in fellowship. Thank you for listening to today's teaching. If you would like more information about our podcast and subject matter, or if you would like to leave a comment, go to godslovelanguage.com. Or you may email Joe at jnlow at godslovelanguage.com. 